Hello, I'm David Sanborn, and welcome to As We Speak. Terry Lynn Carrington, drummer, band leader, producer, professor, and so much more. This week, I'm going to speak with her about the many hats that she wears and her hopes for the future of this music. I don't remember when we actually first met, but we first started playing together. It was in the early, mid-80s. Yes, that was about right, 85, I think. Yeah, yeah. 85, 86. So yeah. you were, at that point, you were 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And you were already a seasoned musician. I mean, you had, had so much playing experience. And uh, right off the bat, I was really struck with your sense of the ensemble. And, and the fact that a lot of drummers are, you know, great at grandstanding, but they don't listen and they don't, you know, engage in the conversation that's necessary to, you know, play with others. And uh, you had all of that in a very unselfconscious way. And just the sound of your drums was so orchestral. You know, the way your, your cymbal technique and uh, just the, the way you hit the drums, and it was just... You know, I, you were a student of Alan Dawson's in, in uh, uh, Boston, as was Tony Williams, and uh, he seemed to imbue all of his students with that that sense of like, you know, you're in the ensemble. I don't, I don't know if that for a fact, but is, uh, you know, is that true, Alan's? Uh, yes, you know, I think he was extremely conscious of, like what you said, you know, being orchestral on the instrument, and I think that definitely. Uh, reflected in his teaching, and I think we were all inspired and influenced by that part of his drumming. He played vibes, and he would play with us often. But he also, I think, showed us a technique, certain way of playing uh, that had a control on the instrument that I think, you know, allowed us to not necessarily hack through everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And he made us sing while we play too. And I think that made us, you know, really more conscious of melodies and uh and the music around us. Yeah, uh, that that sense of the ensemble and the sense of the of the conversation that's necessary to have. There's so much stuff I want to talk about with you. I mean, from the the new stuff which actually I just heard this morning, your social science project, the title was Waiting Game. Yes, and it's with um, Aaron Parks, uh, the pianist Aaron Parks, and Matthew Stevens. It's a collaboration with them primarily as as writers. Then we brought on uh, Morgan Guerin, who's multi instrumentalist, plays bass and saxophone, as well as Debo Ray, who's the vocalist. And for the record, uh, we featured Casa Overall uh, with doing the DJing, electronics, and things like that. But Kokai is uh, with us now. There's an intimacy uh, to that whole album. Got to listen to this on headphones because there's yeah. so much shit going on. That, I, mix, yeah. I mixed it on headphones. I like mixing on headphones. Most engineers Absolutely. hate that, but I, I like it because I think that's how people listen to music and you yeah. can hear all the details uh, easier, I think, that way. But... And I, I think that led, led to the intimacy of the, the whole sound and the whole feel of it. There was uh, one tune, I think it was... Uh, the, the the one trapped in the American dream. Okay. It almost sounded like a like a bolero. Yeah, you know okay. what I mean? It's okay. just the way that because there there was a kind of a 
Spanish element to the the guitar melody mm-hmm. in there that was I don't know it was just great. Uh, okay. so. Yeah, trapped in the American dream. Um, to me, I put that first on the album because I felt like it encapsulated all the things that we were trying to do with the project that the band was trying to do, um, which is, you know, not, of course, all the themes are social justice themes, uh, but musically, you know, you, you hear some rap and we're in 5-4, uh, you don't hear that so often, <laughs> uh, but and you hear indie rock with some of the guitars, you know, especially toward the end, you hear a bit of contemporary uh, classical influence with the composition. Aaron Parks wrote the music. Uh, you know, you hear jazz, you know, with the tenor solo, and it kind of really, I think, points the direction of the whole album and, and what the band is trying to do. So we went first with that. And then um, Pray the Gay Away is a song that I wrote, like, really quickly uh, because I heard... Uh, you know, Pastor Kim Burrell, who's one of my favorite uh, gospel artists as far as her songwriting and singing. But, um, you know, there was a thing going around where uh, she said some very negative things uh, to the LGBTQ community. So that song came out in about 10 minutes. That that's a that's a very uneasy uh, um, relationship there between the let, let's say the gospel community and the and, and the whole uh, LGBT community and, and it's just I, I guess I, I guess it's just a matter of time and education and, and patience and uh, um, dialogue that's going to get us past that I don't know I mean I think just like you know everybody's got to just stay in there and, you know, uh, pray the brotherhood, <laughs> sisterhood, yes. uh, personhood into okay. into existence. You founded the Berkeley Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice. Um, yeah, I founded that institute because basically one day I woke up and realized that there's, you know, a community of women and non-binary artists that didn't have support, the, the kind of support they needed at Berkeley, but it's a much bigger problem than just at Berkeley. It's at every institution, but it's just also in the field itself, in the culture. And I realized that people that are considered exceptions, like myself or Esperanza Spalding or Jerry Allen, uh, that's not that's not good because there shouldn't be exceptions. Everybody should uh, have the support and access uh I always say my dad gave me both a literal and metaphorical access to the jazz stage because he knew so many people and was was able to uh, really help usher me into the culture itself. But that does not happen for most women. Uh, and also I started at such a young age and having that kind of support, nobody could tell me that I couldn't do this. You know what I mean? So, uh, and it's partially my personality um, but you shouldn't have to have what I would call a, you know, competitive or somewhat, you know, aggressive or uh, just this kind of personality that is going to move forward no matter what obstacles uh, are, are in place. And, you know, as a woman, you have extra burdens uh, in, 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 the, in the field in general. 
And, you know, you yeah. shouldn't have to have the kind of personality that can just handle all of those extra burdens. And once I truly realized that, uh, I realized I was going to be, uh, I would have considered myself part of the problem uh, and decided I wanted to be part of the solution instead. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying. I, uh, I can only speak from my own experience. I don't know if this has any meaning in the context of what we're talking about, but it just never occurred to me. I just like the way you play. You know what I mean? It just wasn't, uh, you know, for me, I don't know. But I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I understand also, in a certain way, I will never, you know, understand that because I don't inhabit that that being, but I, I'm, I can certainly be sensitive to it. I look to always be educated because I'm always curious and I want to learn. I mean, about and that's across the board. I, I want to learn about things, you know, assumptions that I've made in my life and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just speak to that because my world is always open to expand yes. and, and to understand new perspectives and new directions. I mean, we're, to a certain extent, the product of our environment and our upbringing and as we go into the larger world, you see, oh, well, you know, everybody comes from a different place Definitely. and they've had different experiences in their life. And, you know, I'm just, I'm curious as a person. I want to understand uh-huh. what, what what different people's perspectives are. Uh-huh. And uh, I mean, I just find, once again, I'm repeating myself, uh, but, you know, I just find you very determined and patient and you just you just keep moving forward coming up in the jazz community which is has definitely has a, a prejudice against female musicians whether they're writers players whatever I mean Mary Lou Williams you know uh-huh. Bill Armstrong going uh-huh. back uh-huh. you know not recognizing the the value and, and contributions but you know David there were a lot more women that you know we cite the same women and there's a I, reason I no, but there's a reason for that, and it's yeah. because these are the women that basically played like the next guy. They were unstoppable because they played like, or in some cases better, than their male counterparts. But you had to have that masculinity in your playing to be successful. Uh-huh. Really, right, even now, the most successful women have that. And I think this is the biggest part because, as you said, we're all products of our environment. And I've been trained to hear you know, jazz a certain way and to, um, you know, like honor and revere, of course, who's been considered, you know, the greatest at it, which have been all men. So that means that the sound that has been created, you know, the, uh, everything that's been created in the music that we consider great was created by men for the most part. So I, what I'm trying to do right now and encouraging other people to do is to try to listen differently. How do we expand in that way? That's a, a big challenge, and I've been trying to do it for years, and I'm finally starting to. And just as an example, um, like I had a student, who, and she played good. She played drums. She was in London. And uh, I would, you know, ask her to dig in more and to, you know, and she had good hands, good technique, and, I realized everything I was asking her to do was really kind of from a, a you know a 
the masculine aesthetic in the music, you know, asking her to just hit harder. And I played a record, and one day I was listening to it, and I realized there's nothing wrong with the way she plays. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, this is, I love the the album, and it's cool, and it's bringing me in in a different way than I'm normally brought in to a piece of music. The drumming is just bringing me in differently. And at that moment, I realized, okay, now I'm starting finally to expand my own ears and my own understanding of what has been missing in the music. And then I have to look at my own playing. What did I suppress or, or not, you know, not uh, acknowledging my own musicality, you know, that I just pushed aside. So I'm actually, you know, thinking about that because, um, you know, I knew that for me to be successful, I had to hit hard. (laughs) And maybe that's, you know, maybe there's other things that I haven't developed. So I'm kind of excited to see how do I back away a little bit? Like, how do I, you know, just be authentic to me at this given moment? not worry about what anybody says, you know? I mean, I remember I read an article uh, in my 30s or early 40s where a critic said she hit harder when she was 18 or something uh, like that. Uh, and I re- speaks to exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I'm encouraging you because you said you like to expand. I'm saying let, let's all expand and look at yeah. how we listen and what we're comparing it to. And I, I realize even within the context of predominantly male musicians, there are, you know, people like Lester Young had a softer sound. So they you, that all kind of tacitly becomes, oh, well, he's not, he's not as aggressive as Coleman Hawkins. So he's not as, you know what I mean? Or but it's Paul still accepted. Desmond. But it's still accepted. It's, it's still, still accepted, accepted because he's a man. Exactly. That's my yeah. point. <laughs> But if 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 a woman had played like Lester Young, they would have said to her, "Well, you just need to hit harder, right?" That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's funny, right? Men can do the whole breadth of the music. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. and there are some that really stay in that zone. There's a plenty of, like I know, some drummers that that I I can't believe they they work because they're very meticulously balanced and not and they don't hit hard and i think a lot of that has to do with jazz education um where that's gone you if you're learning how to play in a classroom and you know and like the way music is listened to now if you're not going to concerts and you're not even hearing the sound you're hearing it through speakers only um which is a lot of students you know they're just on youtube listening you you don't even understand what it's like well, what it feels like to fill up a large space with your sound. Yeah. And everybody's constantly telling you to, to play softer or to adjust. And you're playing, you know, an acoustic instrument that if you're playing with an acoustic bass player that won't plug in and you're playing drums, like how is that, how do you make that work? You know, you have to, you know, so I think there's a lot of sound issues happening now due to the academy. And I think uh, it's, it's, you know, people have to have some of that old school training, you know, because I tell my students all the time, how are you going to fill up a stadium 
What if you have a gig tomorrow in a stadium, even playing straight ahead jazz? How are you going to, you know, get a sound yeah. that will translate in that kind of space? And then the opposite is true. People that just hit hard all the time, you know, they can't, you know, they can't play with vocalists. I was like, you would never work with Cassandra Wilson. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me you're talking about developing the whole breadth, not only of, of ability, but also of consciousness. It's like, you know, in the 20s and 30s, they didn't have PA systems. You had to learn how to project. If you were a saxophone player and there was a line of brass players behind you, you had to understand how to project your sound. It's not about making the sound right up in here. It's about sending it to the back of the room. So exactly. you, you know, instinctively developed the ability to project your sound. And a lot yes. of people, you know, especially young people, you know, they make music in their bedroom. I was talking to Kurt Elling about this. And it's great, and it sounds great. But, you know, they can't do live gigs because you do that shit, you know, on stage, people go, what? Really? What's that? You know. Yeah, there's so, so many young musicians now that are internet stars and have never even played a full show. Yeah, that's true. And so, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, old, uh, these kids today, yeah, right. You know, but it's true. I mean, and I think that comes with time, you know, a certain, a certain kind of knowledge or wisdom that you develop, hopefully, as you grow older and, and you see the, you know, start to understand exactly what you were talking about, about this these preconceptions that we have about, you know, women don't hit as hard. Or if you want to be accepted as a as a real musician, you have to be able to do that and not not understanding that you've got a lot more to say and that that can be educational and and elucidating in a, in a, a creative way to everybody. And it's like, hey, what, you know, you're forgetting about this end of the palette, you know, because it's all, it's trying to broaden your palette and your understanding and expand your mind. You yes. know, what we do is, is as much a spiritual quest as it is, uh, you know, trying to play better. Mm -hmm. trying to play better is trying to communicate better and we're trying to communicate ideas and you know if you have a full range of colors you can express yourself in a better way and then you know transform and transcend right. yourself and get to that place that absolutely you know, I'm, I'm getting a little overblown here but <laughs> no but i hear you we're all passionate about this about all of this you know i think because and this is what I end up saying to most people. If you love the music, which most of us do because you're not playing jazz or even listening to it unless you love it. Yeah. Uh, and if you love the music, you want to see it reach its full potential. Yeah. And the only way it will reach its full potential is with inclusivity. And when there's equity uh, with the people that create it. Yeah, it makes everybody's lives better. It just does. And I think, you know, I think it's can be it's threatening, in a way. If you if you dug in with your preconceptions about stuff, and you know, it's like, wait a minute, I've been wrong all this time. No, you just haven't thought about it. You know, right. you and I don't wrong. blame people. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. I don't blame people because we're all a part of a system. I mean, I yeah. thought the same way even probably ten years ago. You know. So we're all kind of 
victims of a system that has said this is, you know, that's why, you know, our slogan is Jazz Without Patriarchy, because patriarchy is the system. You know what I mean? It's, it's part of the, it's what created the various oppressive systems that we, uh, you know, are, are trying to deal with today. And it's by coming at it from that perspective, from from the inequity that's been, uh, you know, exhibited to, toward women, you all of a sudden it opens the door to understanding how we've limited all all of us, men, women, every everybody, because as you pointed out, men are a victim of the hierarchy too because it's expectations, expectations of, of women, expectations of men. I have to be this, I have to be that. And you're denying yourself access to that part of yourself that is, you know, has been suppressed by cultural norms, if, if that's the right word. Yeah. And a lot of young men are, are rejecting that, and that's what I'm exactly. seeing at at Berkeley. You know, especially uh, you know, some people go as far as to not uh, to have a, a pronoun, and you know, that lives in the binary. Uh, and some people just you know gravitate to our institute because they're just kind of tired of having to perform masculinity um, and feel like you know more comfortable there, just being themselves. So it's interesting to see how things are shifting. What defines commerciality? The fact that you operate within certain norms, certain established norms, or that there has to be, is ha does it have to do with the form? Does it have to do with uh, the content, the, the, the sound of it, or does is it non-threatening or more threatening or well the first thing i would say is there are people that are obviously commercial that are breaking down those barriers which is beautiful um like kendrick lamar i mean yeah. you know he to pimp a butterfly has so much jazz in it you know but it was you know clearly a hip-hop album yeah. you know too so there are people that are uh really making that question even more uh, pertinent uh, but in general I mean when you listen to what's playing on the radio uh, on R&B radio let's just stay with that R&B radio like mm -hmm. I really don't relate to most of it I don't relate to the no. lyrics I don't relate to the words some of it you know has you know I'll find a song every now and then it has something very cool harmonically or some cool samples or you know some kind of groove that's just not your basic groove programmed on a drum machine without a hell of a lot of creativity. Um, when I hear creativity in in the programming, that's when I perk up. Like one of my favorite albums that was a commercial album back, God, it's been twenty years now, uh, is Missy Elliott. Uh, so addictive. Yeah. yeah, that album was great. It's still great. Yeah, and put it on. And, you know, I know Timbaland had a lot to do with that production as well. But the songs were good, the sounds were good, the samples. Were, and even though there was, and I remember playing that album on a bus for Herbie once, and he listened to the whole album because he, you know, he said he doesn't like you know hip hop or he doesn't like it because it's too stagnant, too static. And so I played him that album to give him an example of hip hop that wasn't static, where there was things constantly coming in and out. You know. 
So uh, um, it's possible to do some interesting, you know, commercial music. But I would say if you put on R&B radio, the majority of it were people that are highly creative musically. Uh, it, it is very basic in form. In most cases now, you know, one bar repeating, two bars repeating, maybe four bars repeating. You know, we've lost bridges, you know, all of that. So you're focused on on the vocal. And I'm not dogging the production style because, I mean, I just did a, a music for a film where I had to, you know, actually program some things. I had to buy some equipment because I hadn't really been diving that deep into programming. But I had to for this. And I had to program some things that are, you know, straight up hip hop. Um, so I, there's definitely an aesthetic there. And um, and what I love about hip hop is it's it's really speaking to the culture of being creative with whatever you have. And it, yeah. if you're coming from a community where you didn't have music lessons, you didn't have instruments, but you, you were able to work on a laptop. You know, you had a laptop and that's it. You know, but you were driven to be creative musically. That's what we're hearing, you know, these days. And um, we're hearing the, all the possibilities of technology because that's where that particular style, you know, R&B and hip hop, it kind of moved uh, to utilizing technology more and more and less and less utilizing, you know, what musicians go to school for and and uh, spend many, many years learning, you know, to, to uh, perfect a craft. And I'm not uh, putting it down because I recognize it as part of um, the culture and as part of, part of a contribution to society that is not just being uh, embraced by the, the, the culture that created it, but that's being embraced by every other culture because hip-hop sells more than any other form. That's commercial, and jazz is not. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if you have... If you've gained more knowledge and and your uh, experience as a musician, do you, when you're going in to do something that is, let's say, incorporates hip hop or, or to something commercial, does that mean that you resist a creative impulse to do something? Like if that creative impulse doesn't align with something that necessarily is uh, uh, representative of that music in the commercial sense? Yeah, no. No, no, I don't personally. Uh, that, I mean, that's why I don't really have any commercial music. <laughs> I was working on some music for a film, which was a specific thing. So I had to try to copy, you know, sounds and things that, that are popular now. Um, but if I'm doing something creative and I want to pull in those elements, I, I, that is part of the creative impulse. You know what I mean? Is pulling in elements as as well as uh, as well as whatever I'm hearing, you know, against it. So I'm always trying to expand because the last thing you want to do as a jazz musician is, you know, do some hokey, corny hip hop. You know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 so you want to pull it in, but you have to use your own creative impulses to make it actually cool. Or you just sound like a jazz musician trying to do hip-hop. Can you speak to a little bit to your approach as a producer? 
you know, both for yeah. yourself, obviously, and, and other people, you know, yeah. in a general way, you know. I, I, I kind of, like, produce, I guess, how I like to hear music, you know, and um, I, I'm pretty critical of music in general, so I keep pushing when I'm producing something to be something that I would like. Like, I'm, I'm, I, that's my bar. Like, would I listen to this if it wasn't me? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and if the answer is no. Because it, it pleased me. <laughs> yeah. If the answer is no, then I'm like, at what point would I stop and fast forward or, you know, or take it off, skip to the next song? Um, you know, and I keep thinking like that. And, you know, that. so, like, honestly, it takes a while to get to that. Like, the, the first album that I really felt that way about is social, the Social Science album. I can still listen to that album, whereas most of my records before that I just can't listen to for various reasons. <laughs> but yeah. uh, Social Science, I, I, I feel like that was one of the first complete, you know, albums that I felt proud of. Uh, Social Science was a collaboration, and I felt I, like I've always wanted to be in a band and have a band. And see, here's the thing, too, that with women musicians, I, I find... I've had to create most all of my experiences. After being a side person with greats like yourself, Herbie Wayne, Dan Getz, um, Joe Sample, different people, uh, when I stepped out on my own, um, not that I didn't get support, but most of the cool stuff I've done is because I created that that experience. And I think, you know, that's another area of equity with women, that's 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 harder. You have to really work. I work nonstop. Every night, I say I'd like to just watch a movie, and then it's two a.m. and I'm still working. Your work ethic. I have to take a nap. <laughs> you know, it, I I can't believe how much you work and how much you produce. It's just astounding. It's so like, I mean, but it speaks to your dedication. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm starting to say no to things, but it's hard to say no when something really does speak to the cause. And, care, you know, when I look back, you know, everything I do is because it's for the love of the music. It's for the love of the music, it's for the love of uh, the culture, and it's for the love of humanity. And, you know, and then I like my work, so, you know, that fits in there too. But at the end of the day... You know, I love this music. I love the culture, the people that create it, and um, that's that's fulfilling for me. I feel uh, purpose driven in that way and mission oriented in that way. And when you can live your life, you know, I, I I try to live with no regrets. And of course, we all have a few. You know, hopefully they're small, but um, you know, I really try to live every day. Uh, not I'm not gonna say like it's the last, but but without regret you know that I've put my best into trying to make something better whatever that is something we could go on for for days talking about this stuff because I certainly learn things when I talk to you because your in, insights are very you know uh, they, they always lead me someplace else and that's what I love about you as a player and as a thinker as an artist, as a human being, as a soul. So, thank thanks, you, David. Terry. Thank you so much. And I got to say, just for the record, I really appreciate 
you know, back in the 80s when you hired me because, you know, those, I, I don't ever forget those kinds of things because it was a big deal for me to play with you. And, really? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm grateful that you felt that way. And I, I certainly enjoyed playing with you. And I felt, you know, that, that that time we spent together on the stage and, and just traveling and stuff was time well spent. This has been As We Speak, a podcast from WBGO Studios. This episode was produced by Trevor Smith. Billy Robinson is our executive producer. And the president and CEO of WBGO is Stephen A. Williams. I'm David Sanborn. <laughs>